0: As the lights go down and as the screen comes up, all you see is a, a thick fog, a haze. As the camera pushes through, these little wisp, almost like smoke, break across the lens. Uh, I'm sitting there, not quite sure what I'm staring at. I got my bucket of popcorn, extra butter, and my Diet Coke, because they cancel each other out, and I'm mesmerized. As it starts to push through, I see these silhouettes start to appear. As we get closer, I realize they're twisted limbs and trunks, an old thicket forest. Somewhere in years past, it's gone to waste, and the camera and the moonlight moves us up and through and under, and then one by one, they start to appear. I don't make the first two out, but the third, I catch a glimpse, they're tombstones, We've gone through a little small gate that's been open for so long, weeds have grown up through the iron, and now one by one, we pass through the tombs. That little, that little music starts. I'm frozen on my popcorn and my Diet Coke. My wife leans over on my shoulder, and she goes, what is it? And I go, I don't know. She goes, I think I'm going to close my eyes. And I go, I think you better. She hates scary things. <speaks in> At the edge of the bank where the little tombs are, we slide down a cliff, and there the mighty rushing river roars. Down through the rapids, still cascading, bubbling white with the frost and the foam and the moon, we get to the city. It's familiar. Not a sight, not a silhouette, and a cobblestone. Very few candles lit on the corner, and then the large walls once again appear up 300 feet, over 40, 50-foot thickness of it, guards on top and inside a slightly different neighborhood. And I recognize the palace before we get to it. Up and over the huge wooden gates, through the manicured gardens, up the same marble column. And there the linen tapestry once again is blowing in and out with the night air. It's almost as if darkness is breathing. And it clicks again. We see him toss, turn in his bed. As the camera falls over his face, once again, sweat beads break out, eyeballs under his lids, bouncing back and forth. But this time, in only the way cinematography can, everything blurries and then envisions, and I realize, We get to see this dream. It's a land that is lush and plentiful, and all of a sudden, the ground starts getting ripped up. Giant roots are tearing through the countryside. They all join together, and up from the ground makes this giant trunk. As the tree shoots up, it grows wider and larger, all the way up until it pierces clouds. And once there in the ceiling where it hits its limits, branches just start busting forth in all directions. Fruit appears. Leaves appear. Birds from all over the world come flocking into its shade. Down below, animals from the kingdom all gather around. And in this majestic scene, it's pierced by a yell from somewhere up there. And one by one limbs and branches begin to break off and fall to the earth as they hit animals scattered dust and smoke appear everything falls from the sky and there with a shot he sets up in his bed again and once again he's out to the porch and I'm watching this king this most powerful man in the known world the leader of the great Babylon empire this dude has got some nightmares (laughs) And this one's a doozy. And yet tonight, he will write the story. Chapter four changes dramatically in the book of Daniel. We've been reading the diary of four teenagers that made a commitment in the cafeteria their freshman year at Babylon University. And in Chapter 4, a different pen takes over. You Bible geeks will know the Old Testament's written in Hebrew, the New Testament in Greek. The New Testament has a few Aramaic sayings and words, more quotes than anything else. But before, in this part, of chapter of Daniel and on is written in Aramaic. It's a different language. It's a different pen. The king himself. We'll tell this story. And if you got a Bible, you need to open to Daniel chapter 1. Hopefully you already have something in there from the nights before. And we pick up a dream. It is a doozy. And today, if you listen, you may understand this may have much more to do with your life than it has to do with his. King Nebuchadnezzar, to the peoples, the nations, the men of every language, who live in all the world, may you prosper greatly. It is a state paper. It is a decree that he will write himself. It is a public statement to all who are willing to listen. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and the wonders that the most high God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, content and prosperous. Circle, highlight, underline. Content and prosperous. And I had a dream that made me afraid. Uh, Let me promise you something. There is a danger zone that we can get into when we find ourselves content and prosperous. There is a great myth in America today that says when things are going well for you, it means you're blessed. We even use language like that, especially if you're around churchy people. Hey, how are you guys doing? Oh, we're blessed. What does that mean? Well, everyone in the family seems to be healthy. We have more than enough to pay for our bills right now. Our jobs are good. We are blessed. And yet, nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further from the definition of blessed. There is a danger of simply being an American because we are one, if not the most prosperous nation in the world. And it lulls ourselves into thinking that we must be doing good. And it's a Christian identity that is a lie. Blessings are not your family is healthy and you have wealth. Because just think of that. That means anyone who has a family member who is not healthy, your family is cursed. Anyone who is in poverty, your family is cursed. It also goes to the other extreme. It means the wealthiest people in America are the most blessed by God, and yet we know that's not true. And you take it to the other screen. If blessings is wealth, then we have to explain to Haitians why God hates them. And that's gonna be a difficult message for you to preach. Don't get me wrong, we should thank God for every good gift. Every good gift we have comes from above. My life is filled with great gifts, but that has very little to do with my walk with him. And when we start thinking because things are going well, we must be okay with God, we better step back and look at both ends of the spectrum and realize this is a terrible theology to fall into. I was content and prosperous, and I was thinking I must be good. And then I had a dream that scared the bejeebies out of me. There's a lot to read, so I don't know how to do this. I'm gonna try to read fast. I've already explained the dream. You kind of saw it up there in the film, and now we're gonna do it, because i just skip it, but if you skip it, it's the Word of God, and I hate skipping the Word of God, because this book, which I thought was the most boring book in the entire world for the first 25 years of my life, now is the most amazing, exciting thing I ever get to open up and teach and get into and read and understand, and then I realized the book isn't boring. The fact that boring people taught it to me my whole life, they should be the ones that are responsible for it, but this is an amazing plan for me, and so instead of trying to skip and just tell it, word of God I'm going to read it but I'm going to read it about like I'm talking right now so here we go wait it's the altitude it's not because I'm chubby let me get my breath (laughs) as I was lying in my bed the image and the visions that passed through my mind that terrified me so I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dreams for me when the magicians the enchanters the astrologers the diviners came I told them the dream but they could not interpret it for me finally Daniel came into my perspective and I told him the dream He's called Belshazzar after the name of my God, lowercase g, and the spirits of the holy gods, lowercase g, is in him. I said, Belshazzar, chief of the musicians. I know that the spirit of the holy God is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for to you, and here's my dream to interpret for me. These are the visions I saw while lying in my bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the very ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit was abundant, and not his food it was for all. Underneath the beast of the fields found shelter, and the birds of the air lived in its branches. From it, from every creature was fed. And I told you that, because that was the opening scenes. We went through the darkness of the tombstone, into his dream, and we saw it. And I kind of like how we ended the story that way. So now here we go. 13, in the vision I saw while I was lying in my bed, I looked, and there before me was a messenger, a holy one coming down from heaven. And he called in a loud voice, cut down the tree and trim off its branches. I can't do that because I'm going to blow a tonsil. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But let the stump and its roots bound with iron, bronze remain in the ground and the grass of the field. Let him, now it changed from a tree, but the messenger in his dream said, let him be drenched with dew of heaven. Let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. The decision is announced by the messenger. The holy one declares the verdict so that the living may know that the most high is sovereign over the kingdoms of men. And he gives them to anyone he wishes and he sets over them the lowliest of men. So this is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belshazzar, tell me what it means, for none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me. But you can, because the spirit of the holy gods, little case h, little case g, is in you. So Daniel, also called Belshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time. His thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. And Belshazzar answered, my lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. So Daniel comes in and he hears this dream. And once he hears this dream, Daniel is perplexed, not because he can't interpret the dream, but because he can. And Neb is like, Dan, You got to tell it to me. And Daniel's like, ah. Ah. Okay, first of all, I wish this wasn't about you, but I wish it was about your enemies. (laughs) Because even though we built a pretty good relationship over the years, you're still the guy that cuts out people's heads into little pieces. But once again, Babylon can't help you when it comes to the greatest of life's problems. Once again, the best of your magicians, the best of your sorcerers, the best of your magic cannot help you. Once again, living a life that makes life all about you, and you are the king, and you are the source of right and wrong, and you can do what you wanna do, and you can please your own desires, and you can follow your own dreams, comes crashing to a halt when you can't figure out your dreams. Because if you play God of your life, the total wisdom, resources, and help of your life resides within you. And in the words of the incredible Hulk, puny God, if you really want to run your life your way, when you come across the greatest of life's problems or questions, It's on you. Do you really wanna be the center of your universe? And once again, Babylon has no answer for a godless living. And Daniel says, I have the answer. You're not gonna like it. But in the last chapter, my three buddies had to stand up in front of a crowd as everyone knelt. And no one said the Christian life is going to be easy. And the one that said when you follow God, you're going to be rich, wealthy, and wildly successful is a fool. And they've not read the book. But I made a commitment my freshman year in the cafeteria that I will live under one true God. So since you asked, I will speak the truth. So Belshazzar answered, my lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries, the tree you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the entire earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the beasts of the field, and having nesting places and branches for the birds of the air, you, O king, you are that tree. You become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. Babylonian empire holds dominion over the known earth at that time. You, O king, you saw a messenger, a holy one coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it. But leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live like the wild animals until seven times pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree that the most high has issued against my lord, the king. You will be driven away from the people. You will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until acknowledging that the most high is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with the roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when, circle, highlight, underline, Only when you acknowledge that heaven rules, therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. You're the tree. You're the king. You're the great Babylonian empire, and you're the king of it. Your dominion, your rule, stretches over nations. But it still falls under heaven. And no matter how great you get and how big you are, it still falls under heaven. And you have forgotten that. So a message from heaven came chop down the tree, put him in his place. For seven years, you will act like a wild animal, you will eat grass like the cattle. Amazing, even today, in our journals of medicine and psychology, if you look up Boanthropy, B-O-A-N-T-H-R-O-P-Y, Boanthropy, it's a mental disease that makes one act like cattle or a cow. And in almost every journal and reference, it references who? The great king of the Babylonian empire, Nebuchadnezzar, as one of the first known cases of a person Whose mental illness drove them to act like a wild animal for seven years you will have the dew fall on you in other words you will be homeless you will live out in the open air at night and for seven years you are going to be a raving madman oh powerful man of the universe and all this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. You see, 12 months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power for the glory of my majesty? The world, the words were still on his lips when a voice came from heaven This is what the decree is for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. Your life is alone. Your gifts are alone, and they can be taken in an instant. And since you used your life, your gifts, to make yourself great, the God of heaven said, I will make a spectacle out of the greatest man in earth as an example and a warning to others. And I will take everything that you think is yours and my and I and in verse 33, immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from the people and ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. This guy was uncut, unshaven, untouched, beastly. And at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High, capital M, capital H I honored and glorified him who lives forever now this is where he ends up so he can write this autobiography when it comes to the most high God His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the people of earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the power of heaven and the people of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At that same time, my sanity was restored. My honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt the glory of the King, capital K, of heaven, because of everything he does is right, and all of his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. What a jacked up story. You ever get to parts of the Bible where some of you just realize, I don't think I've ever heard that story before. Like, I've been to church all my life. They didn't teach me that in Sunday school. And you get to parts of the Bible that are just one little chapter, one episode. It's the only chapter that Nebuchadnezzar has ever written, and we have it, and you go, what the heck is that about? This is the most powerful man in the known world at that time who says, let me tell you what happened to me, and let me tell you how I got there, just in hopes and prayers, that if you're a teenager in the midst of Babylon, You don't go down the path that I went down Daniel said here's what you need to do to make sure you're on the right path so let's go back everything we're looking at every answer is found in verse 25 You will be driven away from people. You will live with wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. You will be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. You want to take notes on tonight. It's only three things and it's pretty small, but it's going to be found right here. Number 1, you want to make sure you're on the right path. You want to know what does it look like to be a follower of Christ? What does it look like to be a Christian? Number 1 is simply this. It's the starting point. You acknowledge that heaven rules. You acknowledge that heaven rules. What's it mean when Daniel says, you, O king, you've got to acknowledge that heaven rules. What it means is you've got to submit. There is a power greater than you. There is an authority greater than you. There is something that you live under, God's sovereignty. We talked about this on day one. We had the map up here, how he bought a plot of land 4,000 years before it was going to find value, how he brought an entire guy, Abraham, to this piece of land right here just to set up Bethlehem. That was going to happen some thousands of years later. What God did to protect a group of people, the plan of God is sovereign. You want to walk with God, you have to submit to him and realize, God's not going to be part of your life but you can be part of his show and the first thing is acknowledging that there is a ruler in heaven I have to submit we don't like this word because it means we have to tap out I hate tapping out I hate tapping out because I grew up with an older brother and I had, a, <clears throat> I had an older brother an older sister, an older brother and a younger brother And my older brother was five years older than me, which means all the time growing up, he would just whoop my butt for anything, just as a hobby. And I deserved it. But one of his most favorite things to do, when he caught me in his room or dealing with his stuff, he would chase me down and always catch me. I'd always try to make it to the bathroom downstairs because it didn't have windows, it had one door and it had a lock. But if he could catch me before I locked myself in 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 the bathroom, throw me to the ground, he'd put his knees right up over my shoulders. So only my head was sticking out. And he'd slowly start to drip spit. He'd let it come down, then he'd suck it back up. Then he'd let it come down and you can't cry and you can't yell for mom because the moment you open your mouth, it's going in. And I would just sit there trying to get away from it, closing your eyes and the spit would come on your face. And he would make up the dumbest things for me to say about him. Say you got the best big brother ever. And I'm like, I hate you. Mother. I hate tapping out. Tapping out means someone has subdued you. Tapping out means you've got no resource. Tapping out means you've got no hope. Tapping out is surrender. Surrender is such a dirty word. I grew up with a dad that loved watching old war movies, John Wayne movies. And anytime someone surrendered, you knew they were beat down. Anytime that white flag went up, you realized they were done. As a man, you don't want to surrender. And that's what we got to understand about this authority in new heaven I guess surrender or tapping out is all defined by who you're surrendering to. 28 years ago, I had a rented tux. All my buddies had rented tuxes. All of her friends friends bought dresses. I've never understood that. And then 28 years ago, I tapped out. I surrendered. I said, for the rest of my life, for the rest of my days, all that I am, all that I do is yours. For the rest of my life, it's not only about my dreams anymore, it's about your dreams. For the rest of my life, I'm supposed to put you first ahead of me and my will and my choices. And for the rest of my life, when it comes to all areas of my love, my thoughts, my devotion, my intimacy, physically, mentally, spiritually, and socially, I'm surrendering. I'm tapping out to you. And you would ask yourself, why the heck would a man do that? And I would go... Have you seen her? That was the best surrender I've ever done. In my tapping out, in my surrender, she said, I do. And maybe surrender. Maybe acknowledging I'm not going to be the authority. I'm not going to be in charge. I'm not going to take the wheel. You do all comes down to who you're surrendering to. It's this idea we've been talking about lordship. What is lordship? Nebuchadnezzar is a perfect example. He is king and the most powerful man on earth. When you acknowledge there is another king, you've gotta take off your crown. When you acknowledge there is another lord, there is another authority, here's what it means then. You can play lacrosse, but as a lacrosse player, you play under a different authority, a different lordship. You can play ball, you can hang out in the locker room, you can hang out with the same friends. But when it comes to their language or their jokes or their communication or what they're watching, you've got an umbrella over you, you're under a different authority. See, they live in Babylon. Babylon says, do what you want, do what please you. I mean, don't hurt yourself and don't hurt others, but besides that, do what you want. It's your image, you are God, lowercase g, and you're allowed that road. Lordship says, all that I am, all that I do. All that I play, all that I sing, all the music that I write, all the friends that I have and what I do with a girlfriend or boyfriend falls under an acknowledgement that there is an authority in heaven. There's an umbrella of lordship. And my entertainment, my money, my sexuality, my job, the way I treat my friends, the way I treat my family, the way I treat my kids, the way I treat my enemies, all falls under an umbrella of authority that I've stepped under and said, I acknowledge. I don't get to call the shots, and because of who you are, I will gladly surrender. That's lordship. Oh, it's my life, but I've signed over the authority of it to someone else. I'm going to play ball his way. Well, well, that means you're going to be different. I think we've hit that pretty well. That means you're going to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego at times. Yeah, yeah, it will. And that's why we have to be careful of, do you really want to submit to, my life is now governed, led by another authority. Someone else has Lord, King, ownership over everything I swipe, everything I watch, everything I say, everything I do. And in return, he said, I do, and I get to be his. I get to walk this earth knowing that I'm the son of the creator. I'm a prince in the kingdom of God. That I am one of the most dangerous people in San Diego because who my dad is. And the biggest problems of life and the biggest questions of life, I don't have to struggle and I don't have to answer because they are his. How do you know they are God's? Because my life is God's. Because my life is God's. Therefore, the obstacles and the problems, the cancer or tumors that may or may not come, the loss of life that may come, the loss of jobs, the finances, the security. It's his. Well, how do you know it's God's? Because my life is his. It's the danger of playing Babylon, of living your life, your dream, your relationship. Then what do you do? You're getting a problem in your relationship. You're getting a problem with your finances. You're getting a problem with your parents. You're getting a problem with divorce. You got a problem with cancer. What do you do? You call on God. Well, why is God answering you? Because, of, um, because the Bible says he has to, Because Jesus died on the cross to answer my prayers. Ooh, that doesn't sound right when I say it in the chapel. But my prayer life gives it away. I live my life, but Jesus has to answer my prayers for my life. Because when I ring a bell, he jumps and serves me. How has that worked for you so far, Nebuchadnezzar? Three times we've seen Nebuchadnezzar say the God is the God most high. Three times we've watched Nebuchadnezzar talk to Daniel and say your God is the true God. Three times we saw Nebuchadnezzar with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say everyone's got to serve the God of the most high. But he keeps going back to Babylon. He keeps going back to the tide. He keeps going back to I want to be king of my life. I want a God that blesses me. But I want a God that blesses my life because Jesus died on the cross to make my life better. Well, doggone it, that doesn't sound right when I say it out loud either. But that's our new Christianity. Jesus died on the cross to bless your life. Jesus does not want to make your life great. Jesus has no desire to build your image. But Jesus wants his image in you to adopt you as son and daughter, And to reach your choir, to reach your lacrosse team, to reach your football team, to reach your track team, to reach the rest of the kids in your school, to reach your little brother. Oh, his desire is to build his image, not yours. And somehow we've got the whole system backwards. And Daniel says, you keep saying he's God, but you need to acknowledge, live a life under lordship. And then he says this. Verse 27, therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice. (laughs) Okay, I know I'm I'm treading on thin ice here, Nebuchadnezzar, but would you please just listen to me? Renounce your sins. Can you confess your sin? Now, that word sin trips us up a little bit, but that's number two. We acknowledge the avenue rules, and number two, we confess our sin. Sin is such a very small word. It's three letters, but it has such huge consequences. What is sin? Sin is anything in your life that opposes lordship. Sin is anything in your life that takes you out of a walk of God. So sin is anything contrary to God's character and God's plan. Sometimes we think of sin as evil. And so, y'all, sin is like evil. Evil people sin. No, sin is doing anything outside of the character and the will of God. Sin is anytime Chris's desires, Chris's wants. What I want to do, what I want to watch, what I want to play with, what I want to do with my sexuality, what I want to do with my time, steps outside of what God's desire is. It is called sin. It is a brokenness in relationship. It goes back to what we said about the Big Bang on Monday morning. That science agrees. Everything started in a point in time. There was a vast explosion of nothingness. The Bible gives one more chapter before the Big Bang. And says that vast explosion was a voice of a creator that spoke nothingness into being. And page one and two, God said, here's why God did it. He wanted you to experience love because God is love. He wanted a people different than any animal, any beast, any bird, any fish. He wanted a people made in his image to act and to think and to reign and to rule here on earth. We've been given dominion over the earth. We are made in his likeness. And because we're made in his likeness, we're made to love. And as we talked about Monday, if we're made to love, love is a choice. It is not a feeling. It is not an emotion. It is a choice, which means there has to be a choice to unlove. And on page three, we find unlove. On page three, we find sin. On page three, we have a story where Adam and Eve are hanging out in the garden, and Satan appears and said, Did God really say you can't eat the fruit? And Adam and Eve are like, no, no, no. We can eat anything. This whole place is ours. What God said was we can't eat the fruit of that tree. And Satan goes, you know why he said it? He knows that when you eat it, you'll be like him. You can make your own decisions. You can be your own God. You can make your own right and wrong. And when they saw that it looked good and it felt good, And it tastes good. And they can make their own decisions, they ate the fruit. And on page three, we have the beginning of choice, brokenness, evil, all that steps outside of God's desire and character. And all of us today wrestle with page three. I wanna decide what looks good, what feels good, what tastes good. And I don't like some archaic book telling me how to live my life telling me what to do with my gender, telling me what to do with my sexuality, telling me what to do with my anger, telling me what to do with my love, my emotions, my talents, my gifts, my athleticism, my looks, my body. I don't wanna acknowledge there's an authority over me. Welcome to Babylon. Let me tell you about the problem of sin. When we make our choices against what God wants, when we make our choices against his character, when we decide to be Nebuchadnezzar and be king, there's two main things that happen. Number one, it breaks our relationship with him. Immediately, Adam and Eve were both naked and they felt guilty and shame. And they covered themselves and they hid. Why? Because sin brings guilt and shame. And we hide from God because we know we're wrong. But sin also breaks a relationship with a holy God, a pure God, who can't be around sin. And so now the relationship we're supposed to have is destroyed. And sin is that Sin is that friction on the line that stands between us and him. Sin is that brokenness that separates us from being right with God. And you go, why? Why is it such a big deal? Because the second thing about sin is it's rebellion against the creator. When you decide to live your life outside of God's will and character, you are rebelling against the creator. Okay, This is where we don't get it. Two really dumb illustrations. I'm good at those. By now you know that. So we're sitting at the table. And uh, my boy brings his best friend over. He's in uh, third grade. And he brings Michael over. And we're having dinner. And Michael's goofing around with my boy Bear. And Bear looks at me and goes, won't you shut up, Michael? And I just kind of like, oh, that's kind of rude to treat his friend. But... His older sister doesn't like the way he talked to his friend. So I'm sitting at the table, and Selah looks at Bear, and she goes, Bear, you shouldn't tell your friends to shut up. And he looked at Selah and said, you know what? Why don't you shut up? Now I'm like, whoa. And I'm about to step in and do something, because that's my, that's my baby girl. But Amy, it hits a button for her. So mom looks at Bear and goes, snaps, Bear, you apologize to your sister and to Michael right now. And Bear looks and he goes, Mom, you can shut up too. Oh. I didn't I didn't think you guys understood. Sinning against the creator, but I guess you do. I guess you do. I told a story, a fictional story, where my son, I told you I make up dumb illustrations. <laughs> only believe what I say about the Bible, not illustrations. <laughs> all the monkeys are clapping right now. They all stopped what they're doing, and they're like. <laughs> now they're all going back to the wheels. I said my son told his friend to shut up, and you guys are like. And then I said, my friend told his sister to shut up, and you're like, oh. And then I said, my son told his mom, oh. He said the exact same phrase. What was the difference? It's the same offense. We weigh offenses differently depending on who it's against. You, you tell your friend to shut up, nah. You tell your big sister to shut up, Mmm. You tell your mom to shut up, oh. Why? Same offense. We measure an offense by who it's against. Don't we? Don't we? So what What offense between friend, sister, mom is telling the creator of the universe and his word to shut up in your life. Where do we put that? Where do we put that? I gotta gotta finish this. I gotta drive up the hill. I I get an incredible privilege to share tonight with the summer staff for their summer staff chapel on Wednesday nights. So I'm gonna, as soon as I'm done here, I'm gonna grab my stuff and jump in the back. They gave me a golf cart to use and I'm, I'm gonna take up off the hill. And as I'm running up to where their chapel is in my little headlights and the little golf cart, I go up and this little lizard runs out and I hit him, poof, and I'm like, ooh. Yeah, I think I got the lizard. And I just keep going. I'm not gonna go back and check. I'm not gonna do a little GPR mm, and the little lizard or anything. <laughs> so I'm just going up going, whoa, oh, that was bad timing for that dude. Oh well. I got to take a left around Meadow Ranch, and I'm driving up, and I'm, on the way, the squirrel comes running out, and I don't know what this squirrel is thinking or doing, but it goes right in front of the golf cart, and it clips the front bumper. Boom, and I send the squirrel spinning, and I'm like, oh, oh, snap. Whew. I think I just sent that squirrel to squirrelly heaven. I may back up. I may not, depending on how late I am. It's a squirrel, but I may back up. Beep, beep, beep. And, and I'm like, oh, and because there's campers that are gonna be on the road tomorrow and meadow ranchers I think, I may get out and I may kick it in the ditch and get back in and I'm gonna go. What the heck do you expect me to do with the dead squirrel? What are you putting on me right now? Eat it? Yeah, I don't want rabies here or here, I want it right in here. But now I'm really late because I kicked a dead squirrel over the side of the ditch. So now I'm getting up to get to Staff Chapel. So I'm going as fast as a golf cart can. So you know I'm going a great five, seven miles an hour. And as I get up where all the staff lives, this little dog comes running out. And I don't see him. I don't hear him. But... I clip snowball right on the side of the head. Now I stop. Don't. I back up. I get out and look. I shine my flashlight. He ain't there anymore, but he's got a collar on him. I'm probably tracking down the cabin and the owners. That's not being kicked into the ditch. I've got apologies. They understand. Their dog chases vehicles. It's not supposed to be outside. It got out earlier that night. They haven't been able to get it. It's a bad scene. Please don't clap and cheer at this next one. We value life differently, we weigh it differently. I run over a lizard, maybe I hit a lizard. A squirrel, uh, I may or may not get out. A dog, we value life differently. A camper, we value differently. So zhoosh, zhoosh. we value life differently. Why is it we can sit here in Babylon tonight and when I say he tells his friend to shut up, he tells his sister, he tells his mom, why is it the things I may hit on the road we value differently? What do you do when your offense is against the creator? when the life that you are taking and betraying is his. Where do we put that on a scale? It is treason to the most high king, Lord of lords, creator of the earth, that I will take my life, I will take my gifts and I will take the breath that you gave me and I will live it my way. My choices, my desires, my sexuality, my choices, my priorities, my language, my friends, my relationships. Where do we rank that on a scale of offense and who it was against? And the Bible says he is a loving God, but he is a just God. And God has to, must punish sin. If he didn't, he wouldn't be loving. If God didn't punish the men who have hurt my family, he wouldn't be loving. If God's not gonna punish the men who have hurt my nieces, he is not loving. He is both loving and just, and sin has to be dealt with because you've taken your life from him and demanded to be king. So Nebuchadnezzar, congratulations. You will feel the authority of heaven, and for seven years... You will live homeless in the land, and you will be a raving madman who eats grass from the fields. Until this awakens you to a God that says, I will leave your stump, and I will leave your roots. There's a God that says, even that I will forgive. I will pay a price to forgive you. And even that offense I will take back the punishment that you incurred. I will take it out on my son on the cross because justice has to deal with sin. So you can deal with your sin or my son can deal with it for you. He says, and then just change your direction. Verse 27, O king, please accept my advice. Renounce, confess your sins and then do what is right in your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. Acknowledge that there is a rule in heaven. There's a king, an authority, a lord. Lordship then is I step under that umbrella of authority. All that I am, all that I do, all that I say, and all I think now is governed by him. And I tap out and I surrender and I get to be his. Sin is every time that self, that choice, that will takes me back to what I want to click on, takes me back to what I want to do, take me back to my own gratification. He says, you confess that sin, you lay it down, you surrender, and you step back into lordship. And then it'll change the direction, the compass, the steering wheel of your life is his. You will be different. You will be set apart. You are a brownie that is licked. You serve a different purpose now. You are no longer Babylon. And it will mean you will be different on the team, you'll be different with the friends, you'll be different in the band, you'll be different in your neighborhood and you'll be different in your family. And if you can't handle your image being different, that's okay, you're not ready for his then. Welcome to Babylon. But but let me challenge you. We live in a world today where Christianity is just number one and we don't do two or three. We just have to acknowledge that there's a God. I believe that there's a God and I believe in Jesus Christ and that makes me a Christian. No, no, no. There's gotta be a confession of sin to walk in relationship and then there's gotta be a walk in right relationship and obedience to that. So I leave you with this tonight. It's in the very back of the Bible, it's a book called James, it's in chapter two and it's in verse 14. Just just listen. Jesus' brother James is writing a book to the church in Jerusalem after Jesus died and rose again. And his brother is saying, let me tell you what this is about. What good is it, brothers and sisters, if you claim to have faith, but you don't have the actions to go with it? Can that faith really save you? What good is it if you say, I believe in God and I'm a Christian, but your life isn't different? Do you think that's real faith? Let me give you an illustration. Suppose a brother or sister is without food and without clothes, and one of you says to them, go, I wish you well, keep warm and be well fed, but you do nothing about their physical needs. What good is that? Not a stranger, not a homeless person. This is a brother or sister, a family member, someone in the youth group that you see that is without clothes, without food, and you go, oh my gosh, I hope you get clothes, I hope you get food, and you move on. He goes, what have you done for them? Oh, you've said all the right things, but there's no life action that goes with it. He says, in the exact same way, saying you have faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by the right actions, you're dead. So someone's going to say, well, you have faith, but I have actions. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God, good but even the demons believe that and they shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without action is useless? Was not our great ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on an altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. A very strange story in the first book of the Bible where God called that old crusty dude Abraham from Babylon area to go out and follow him and give him to a land. And he just wanted to know, Abraham, are you under lordship? Even if I ask you, The most insane things, will you do it? I'm gonna test you, Abraham. Take your young boy, Isaac. Take him up on the mountain and sacrifice him to me. And Abraham had Isaac in his 90s. It's his only son. And he takes him up to the mountain and he ties him down and he raises a blade. And the voice of God goes, stop. (laughs) I just wanted to see if you'd follow what I said. Don't hurt your son, Abraham. Now it's the only time in all of human history God asked for something like that. The Bible, of course, abolishes any sacrifice, any ne- unnecessary pain inflicted on any child. It was a one time only where God just wanted to know, Abraham, will you do? Are you really in lordship? Your actions showed. You believe me. So you believe in God and Jesus. Good. You know that demons do as well, don't you? Let me ask you tonight. How do you know you're a Christian? How do you know you have faith? What do you believe? Well, I believe in God. I believe He's Creator. I believe He sent His Son Jesus to die on the cross. I believe Jesus died for our sins. I believe He rose again. That's demon faith. The demons believe that. The demons know all of that. The demons watched it happen. The demons have a greater faith in God and Jesus than you do. What separates your belief from demon belief? Surrender. Surrender. I surrender to that knowledge, to that belief. Today we've made Nebuchadnezzar faith... Christianity. Nebuchadnezzar admitted there's a God. He believed in the one true God. He mentioned it three times but he built his life according to his image, his purpose and God said, I'm stepping in big guy. I'm taking over the show. Please tell me please tell me your faith is different than demon faith. It cannot be a head knowledge. It cannot be a belief. What separates the demons' knowledge about God in mind? They outknow God, they outknow Jesus far more than I do. They won't surrender. I've stepped over a line and said, "God, I've got to confess. I've been living life my way. I've been doing the Internet my way. I've been doing relationships my way. I've been building my own kingdom, I've been building my own image, I've been wearing my own crown. And I don't like the weight of it. I'm done. And I acknowledge there's an authority that is sovereign who has invited me, proposed to me, to adopt me, to step into that family and that role. It doesn't mean I'm going to be perfect the rest of my life. God doesn't demand my perfection. What God demands is my direction. I'm constantly going to fail and blow it in those areas. I'll confess. I'll stop. I'll pick up his life again, and I'll walk from mine, and I'll step back in. This is not about perfection. None of us can do it. This is not me working for God, trying to please God. It is me stepping into the role of being son and daughter and being his and living out everything he's given me. We'll hit that again tomorrow night, tonight. So what is it? What is the sin what is the area in your life that you know? I'm doing it my way. I don't know how, Hume, how, Mikey, you want to close this and what you want to do. But I'm going to pray and I'm going to allow him to decide what you guys do with this. But whether it's in here, whether it's tonight, tomorrow, man, I invite you, wherever you are, to climb up in the lap of this almighty God and just say, It's me. You know me. You know I've been living my life my way. Sorry. I'm done. I'm done. I'm going to confess these areas and give me your strength, your grace to never go back to it again. We hit lordship. What's it mean to stand and be separate? Sin that separates us from that choice. Tomorrow and the next night, we'll put it together. What does it mean to surrender? What does it mean to sign the pink slip of your life and give it over? Father, may we continue to wrestle this week with your truths that we have daily told you the almighty god of all creation to shut up and we don't wince at the thought of it it is your holy life that we have offended and we don't give it a second thought god may we be mindful of the areas of our life that go against your character your will your word in our life God, may you give us a conviction to wrestle with those things that separate us from you, to bring us to a point where we can walk with you and you alone. In Jesus' name, amen.